Imagine you picked up the most important book in the world, a book with words that can transform hearts. Included in this book are highlights and notes in the margin. This is the Notable Podcast, and these are the discussions of twin pastors who share their underlining and highlighting with you. This is Season 7, Life Reframed, a podcast on Ecclesiastes. Hello and welcome to the Notable Podcast. We are so glad you are here with us tonight. We are doing a podcast that it's entitled tonight, The Gospel According to Solomon. And we're excited to get into this. This is a huge, huge, huge Huge. topic. This is the foundation. (laughs) Of, yeah. of, of this entire book, and I'm not over-promising. Please do um, mash, uh, subscribe on YouTube. If you're with us tonight, please feel free to chat in your questions. Um, if you come in later, you can uh, chat in questions too, and uh, we can come back to it and try to answer them there as well. Um, check out our website, notablepodcast.com, to donate, same place. You can find us on Spotify and Apple and other streaming platforms too. Welcome. This is the Gospel According to Solomon. Here we go. And it, I, I don't want to overpromise about this episode, but oh man, this is the very heart of the gospel. And we're going to try to make the case that this is also the very heart of Ecclesiastes. And if the Lutheran Reformation taught us anything, we learn that this is the very heart of the scriptures and it is the very heart of God. We want to know how we relate to him. We want to know if he loves us. And that's what this, this episode is, is really all about. And I don't want to miss that. We have in Christ a gracious God. He is a gracious God to us. Blessed be his name. And I just wanted to say that up front because I guess my fear, Jonathan, is that it would be, it could become easy because this is going to, we're going to get more technical, grammatical, language geeky in this episode than probably in all the rest of them. And I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. God is pleased with us. <laughs> and God's and that Lord. resonates throughout our lives in this book. God is pleased with us. It's it this is the bedrock. Uh, we were at dinner uh, the other night at my house and we were talking about bridges for some reason and we were talking about the Golden Gate Bridge. I guess my daughter learned about it at school and and we were uh, one of the points that we made is that this, the Golden Gate Bridge, I didn't know this, but apparently it, it, it goes up almost some, something like 700 feet over the water. And I was thinking about how, how deep the bedrock must be to take the weight of that mm. the, the, over time. And th- that illustration sticks in my head. This, this, is, this, this teaching that we're going to look at tonight, the 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 tower of ecclesiastes rests on these passages 
that we're going to look at tonight. Everything that he says about enjoying your life, we said that this was the primary experience of the book, rests on these passages tonight. And and Jonathan, like not to be bombastic, it, our salvation, like our, it's, it's not just the book of Ecclesiastes, our salvation is we're going to rest our hearts, our dying breaths with these passages. This this is this is a huge, huge podcast. We this is called the Gospel According to Solomon. The very not only our salvation, but the very interpretation of this book hinges it Turns hinges on. on this. So if you haven't listened to the last episode, um, listen to it. Get into the Carpe Diem passages. This is a partner episode that you could say this is part two of that. Um, and, and I want to show you why we, what we want to look at, this is Ecclesiastes 2. And if you got it up on the screen is this phrase of this person who pleases God, the person who pleases God. So who, who um, is approved by God. And that, that is, that is justification languages language there and look it can go two ways and i'm going to see if i can make this as simple as i can if god doesn't exist or worse if god is angry with you then the very best that you can do is drink your wine have a fun time with your wife and and try to forget about the fact that one day this angry god is going to give you the punishment that you deserve and so the, the Carpe Diem passages, if you have an angry God, they, um, they become nihilistic. They become Epicurean. They, are, they become negative. I hope that makes sense to everybody. But what if we have a God who is gracious, who loves us in Christ? Well, then the Carpe Diem passages become what we might say, think of is, is the penultimate experience and yet another gift of this good God who one day wants to give us something even better. Is this making sense? So it, it, if we have a gracious God, then the Carpe Diem passages are positive. They're evangelical. There's something to embrace. If, we have, if God is angry with us, it's a whole other story. Is this, did I explain that well? I You're going to, depending on what you do with these passages that we're looking at tonight, you are either going to be pushed into hedonism uh, by this book or something worse. But what we're saying is that this is going to push you to God. It's actually going to put you in a, what we're going to call later in the podcast, a filial relationship with God, a child relationship with God so that instead of what you're going to end up doing is just enjoying his gifts. That, that's exactly right. And th I'm not the only one that says this one scholar said it better than me. This is, this is what the scholar wrote without clearly connecting them. And he's referring to the Carpe Diem passages to the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. They are impoverished and lead back logically to a negative view. So you want to become nihilistic, Epicurean, uh, then have a God who's angry with you. 
or as Jonathan Edwards says, like who he's who's kind of dangling over you the pit of hell one day. There, the only thing that you can do is 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 enjoy it, knowing that you're going to burn one day. And uh, that is not Solomon's view of things. We're gonna we're gonna blow that up um, and and help you to see that in, in this podcast today. And we're gonna do that really by focusing in on really just two key passages. We're gonna we're gonna look at once again the climactic Carpedium passage and see how justification works itself out there and becomes the foundation for it. And then we're gonna look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter seven, which is really Solomon's uh, Romans chapter three. This is his Romans chapter three. This is justification by faith, um, by grace alone in Christ, and and we're going to show you that in in a little bit. I did want to say this, that sometimes people have a really low view of wisdom literature. Oh, it's just life application stuff. It's, you know, it, it's not really worth reading compared to Romans or Galatians or one of the Gospels. And I want to really blow that attitude up tonight. Like, <laughs> I just want to blow that up because what is what does Paul say in, in 2 Timothy? That these are the scriptures that make us wise. That's wisdom right there. Wise for salvation. And one of the scriptures that he's talking about, I'm going to show you this. This is this is huge. Is the book of Ecclesiastes. We gotta get this that the bedrock foundation, like you said, Jonathan is justification by faith and that really is the happy life that really is a happy life do you want to say more or should we get into the passages well here's the deal so we got timothy said two um you're forgetting we're, we're doing a third we added oh my goodness we, are. we got we got a third so we got ecclesiastes two and then ecclesiastes nine and oh ecclesiastes i wasn't really seven. all right but all the, right. here's the point here's the point we're gonna what we're gonna do is we're gonna stick you in a justification by faith word cloud if you can think about it these are all related terms so we're going to talk about judgment and, and the fear of god words like approval pleasing wickedness righteousness and so the, the we you can think of it as us keying in on certain words that are related to justification by faith and then showing you how the teaching works in each one of these passages. So here's the first one. Um, our first passage is Ecclesiastes chapter two, and we're going to look at verses 24 through 26. We already looked at this one, but now we're going to key in on the justification idea in the, in the passage. And the word that we're going to key in on is the word please. So just li listen for this. Um, here's, here's what it says. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. Now, here comes the key part. It says, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? So relationship with God is key. To the person who pleases him. All right. So there are people who please God. There I circled it. <laughs> there are people who please God. To these people. God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness, but to the sinner, 
He gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a, a chasing after the wind. So I want to introduce this, uh, first of all, by saying in the rest of the book, we're going to find out that there's nobody, nobody righteous. I don't want to skip ahead too much. We're going to do that. Verse. Oh, yeah, nobody. don't. Yeah, don't go there yet. Not, not right now. <laughs> but everybody's a sinner. And yet there are some people who please God. There are some people who please God. They are righteous by faith. Now, this is what we want to say about that. Right relationship unlocks the creation. Right relationship. Un Notice what he said. He said, for without him, without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? So right relationship with God unlocks the creation. I want to I see if I can... I, I can get our listeners here. When we when we are in a creator-creature relationship, when when our ultimate has been satisfied, what ends up happening is the rest of our life is opened up to you. When when you have right relationship with God, when you are uh, treating, you end up treating human relationships like they're just people. They're not a God in your life. Um, he, this is just one example. I was sitting around with, with some friends and we were talking about marriage. And one of the ahas when we were talking about marriage that people were having is that when you put too much weight on your marriage, when you expect too much from your spouse, when you want them to be this perfect person and, and meet all your needs, it actually, it actually puts too much pressure on the marriage and the marriage starts to fray. But but when, when you expect relationship with God, when, when he is in your heart, when you trust him to meet all your needs, it takes the pressure off, the, uh, off your marriage. So what ends up happening is when you're in right relationship with God, that ends up flowing into right relationship in your marriage, and you can actually enjoy your wife or enjoy your, your husband. Same, same thing with all of the things, all of the things that, that we have here Listed and look at Ecclesiastes chapter two. We covered it very heavily. We had all these things that Solomon was trying. None of them, none of them ultimately did it for him. None of them did it. But if we can get them into the right place, see, if we if, if we can get sex into the right place, it's 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 godly sex. It's it's sex the way that God designed it. We talked about monogamy last time. Then it's not no longer lust, it's actually love. See, or when you go to your job, it's not you're not trying to find your identity. You're not trying to only get a bunch of money. Instead, you're actually doing it because you want to you want to you want to bless your family. You want to bless the, you want to bless people with the products or services that you're doing with with your job. So when God's face is shining on you and you and you know it, that means that's that's when you can go and make sh things shine yourself. Yeah, that, that that's exactly right, and. I think you did a good job pointing out what the passage says. I'm going to point out what it doesn't say. It, it doesn't teach us how we please God and how we come into that relationship with him that doesn't, in fact, please him. So that, that remains hidden from our eyes, at least for the moment, as, as the preacher is preaching here. But it, he does want to place importance on that relationship and say, we want to be in a, in a relationship that actually pleases him. 
And I think that's as much as we can say on the basis of Ecclesiastes chapter two. I do. You're good with that. I I do. I want to press this one more time. Just this idea that when, when, when you, when you know God and God is in the right place, all of a sudden everything starts falling into place. You start enjoying his gifts. And I want to do it like this. I didn't point this out when we went through his, um, his research, but he did his research and hopefully we're remembering that he tried laughter. He tried wine. Um, he tried projects. Um, he tried affirmation. He tried all these things, but he said, none of it ultimately worked, but he did say this, this is a key insight. And I'm in Ecclesiastes two verse 10. And I'm in part B. He says this, my heart, this is what I found. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. So he, it wasn't ultimate for him. When God is ultimate, then these penultimate things, you can just receive them as a grace from God and really enjoy your life. Amen. Amen. Let's look at the next passage. And this is where things are going to start to open up for us a bit. Like how, how is it that we relate to God? How, how do we get into this pleasing relationship with him or to use that justification language at Lutheran's love? Let, let's just read just that first verse. I got the whole Carpe Diem. Again, if you haven't listened to the Carpe Diem episode, the last episode, listen to it, go back to it. We're not going to read the whole thing here, but this is what Solomon wrote. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. And here is, this is, well, here it is. For God has already approved what you do. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I know you have a lot you want to say about this. I have so much to say about that, but that, I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. That's the, the whole fir- thing. The first thing I want to say, I just want to set to you up real quick. This is a profound theological statement. This is, it is a foundation of Solomon's claims and nobody should, nobody should ever read this as a flippant statement as if whatever, God doesn't care what you, you know, God, whatever, just live your life. Oh, no. Oh, no. This is a very profound theological statement. Massive, massive claim. This this is this is huge. This is huge. And and this is what makes Solomon's Carpe Diem actually Christian and not, like I said, Epicurean or or nihilistic or go. This is what keeps him from going full Nietzsche on the thing is God has already approved what you do. And let's just be clear about what he's not saying. He, he's not saying, like, let's say somebody's out there and they actually attend, intend to sin and they're thinking, well, Solomon says that God already proves of it. Um, that would be like you're, you're to say it another way. You're not going to want to sort of go around with a T-shirt that says God already proves what you do. That That would be like ripping this completely out of context and completely out of the canon. Okay. So this is, this is not what Solomon's saying. 
instead let like let's let's make let's put this into the context what is god approving of okay eating <laughs> with gladness drinking your wine being clothed in white doing everything with all your might so not sin but the enjoyment of God's good gifts. God has already approved of it. I mean, so let's let's try to put this into a framework of of um, doctrine or the the doctrine of justification not by works. So so before you do do a single good thing or bad for that man, like receive his gifts. <laughs> Or like even do what he's saying to do. Solomon's saying, you have a good and gracious God in heaven. Therefore, you can go and live this way. It, God approves what you do. It, it, yeah. it, it, and it's he's not like angry with you. Yeah, he's not. You're not. You're not to use Jonathan Edwards' imagery again. You're not dangling over the the pit of hell. You're on the precipice of heaven. Is is what it is, and I I think this really matters. Like um, I wouldn't be, you know, sometimes in, in, in movies you see these scenes, and I don't know how accurate they are to reality, but you see these scenes about somebody on death row, and um, I. And then they have a chance to eat their last meal. And I, whenever that happens, it, I, I don't know, it, it, it chills me. And I think I couldn't eat. I just couldn't eat. If I'm on death row, I couldn't eat. I couldn't enjoy anything. And it, I just feel How like, could you? Right. I, it, 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 this is totally flipping it around so that you, you, you're going from life to life. That's what's happening here. You're, you're, you're going from life to life. And this puts the life in life. That's it. That's it. So, you know, let, let me do a little bit of what this word approve means and do a little Hebrew. It means uh, the word there is actually pleasure. So don't take this in the wrong way, but when, when God sees us in, in experiencing his pleasure, so eating, drinking, working hard, uh, enjoying life with your your spouse or or a significant relationship his heart is moved this is how god experiences this is anthropomorphic right so he experiences pleasure like any father would so what is it what does any father what does any mother really want to see their kids doing like doing things with their whole heart in enjoying their life eating well and and when a father sees that you know i'm i'm saying this from a fatherly perspective i'm pleased then and, and this is this is this is what solomon is saying that god you know to, to say it another way the blood of jesus we have to say this the blood of jesus is splashed all over these words because how how does how does a, a wicked person like me or a, a person who has no righteousness on their own become God approved? 
pre-approved. Yeah. Yeah. Pre-approved. <laughs> because the blood of Jesus is splashed all over that verse. And that this is this is what's kind of running as a deep current all the way under this book. It's right there. It's right there. And it's so like when you when you toast and you're with friends and you got that perfect bouquet of wine and your heart is full, it, it's that you your heart thrills. At, at least mine does. My heart thrills knowing that my God loves it that I'm enjoying that moment with my friends. It's like that. It, th- understand, like, this, this is what true joy is, in fact. I, I want to go back to, to the verse in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It says there that to the person who pleases God, um, he gives um, wisdom, knowledge, and happiness, but he doesn't to the sinner. What does that mean? Does that mean the sinner doesn't enjoy a good T-bone? I mean, is that what that means? No, I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't exactly mean that. A sinner can go into any any decent steakhouse and and, and enjoy a T-bone, but not at the deepest level. Not like we can. Not like not understanding that this is so much more than just a sensory experience. This is a gift from my good Father, and my heart is in this because of it. There's there's a there's a movie just to give put this into real life. There's one of my favorite movies, and I, I share this with my church, is um, called Chariots of Fire. Now I'm going to date myself a little bit. But you know the music? Come on. So <laughs> tell me. <laughs> Love that movie. But it, it's about these two Olympians. One, one's um, he, he doesn't relate to God. Uh, and the other is a man named Eric Liddell or Lydell. I'm not sure if I'm, you know, ruining his last name there. But he's having this conversation with his sister, explaining to her why he can't quite yet go to China on mission. And he he's an extremely fast runner. And every time in the movie, when he's running on the beach with that music on, dun, 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 you just see this giant smile on his face. And this is what he says to his sister. He says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel his pleasure. And that seems like almost a direct quote of Ecclesiastes. Because when we, when we do these things here in the Carpe Diem passages to, to the fullest, and we enjoy them and we're engaged with them, that God's approval, he's already approved of it. He's already approved of it. That's what he's saying. And so we don't have to, sit there and wring our hands and wonder, I wonder if God's going to punish me for sin right now. Right. This is a big deal. Huge passage. My last comment on this passage, Timothy, is that really what he's doing is he's ushering us back into Eden as much as it's possible right now. I was actually correcting my own thoughts on this a little bit. And in some sense, we've already entered back into Eden, we've entered back into the kingdom of God. And in some sense, we're not totally back east of Eden anymore. We're re-entering the kingdom of God. We're re-entering Eden and we're experiencing to some degree. I, you know, we talk about this all the time in Christianity, that this is the difference between the now and not yet. We have entered the kingdom again. 
Um, and yet there's some aspects of the kingdom that are not yet because Christ hasn't come the second time. And that's, that's the classic tension in, in Ecclesiastes. Like there is the not yet part of this. We are still going to die. Um, and he, he, has, he has seven reasons for joy actually right now that um, don't, that have to do with the fallenness of creation. He says this, you, you should enjoy your life now because future generations might squander everything you got. Um, he says you should enjoy your life now because um, man has an advantage over other creatures. And, and he, he gives, he gives these seven different reasons, but, it, and, and the point is they, they're, they're negative. They, they have to do with the, the fallenness, the injustices of this world. So, the world is still fallen, but we still have entered back into Eden. There is a now. Jesus said that he came to bring us life, to give us life, and he said life to the full, and that actually has already started, and that's what Solomon is saying. Like, we can we can steal bits and pieces of our true life that God intends for us even now, so we can sip our wine with joy and enjoy it, because Christ sipped the cup of wrath for us, and and we can we can eat um, and be satisfied because Christ um, gave us His body, um, and and we can do that. We can work, and we're going to sweat it out, and it's going to be hard. But we can we can we can eke some satisfaction out of it um, because Christ did the work of of saving us. We I mean we could go through the whole Carpathian passage like that, but that's that's exactly yeah. what this is. Exactly. And you're not the first to kind of notice that it's almost like, in a sense, we're being invited back into paradise, where like, what would you call it? Not east of Eden, not west of Eden, but in Eden. <laughs> so, and, and the I reason mean, why the is because kingdom. it's now not yet. Look at the goodness of his creation. We, we, we got a wife here that he's giving to the man. And so, yeah, there's a lot of things that kind of evoke getting back into Eden because of this, this God approvedness that we have. And, and yet, um, so there, there's a lot, there's a lot there. And I just wanted to point this out. I'm going to read you a Luther quote, and then I'm going to show you one other thing. Solomon says to kind of cement our point that the blood of Jesus is all over this approval. Um, but here's what Luther said about this passage. He said, this exhortation applies to the godly to those who fear God, as though he were saying, you are godly, do what you can, because you know that God approves what you do. This is the height of spiritual wisdom, to know that one has a gracious God who approves our works and actions. Thus, Romans 8.16 says, it is the spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. For unless our heart immerses itself in the will and good pleasure of God, it can never sweeten its bitterness of heart. It will always remain bitter until the heart is filled with the good pleasure of God. This passage ought to refute those who conclude from the mistranslation of the earlier words, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, that men should be uncertain about the will of God towards us. So the, the only thing that's that can can destroy our joy is to be uncertain about our standing with God. And it always will. It always will. But the reverse is always true. When we become by faith, 
certain about our standing with God, everything else comes along. This is a big deal. This is, this is Solomon's teaching. Now, I just want to cement this then. When Solomon talks about pleasing God, um, in the background always is propitiation. Okay? So Solomon's going to use the same language in another one of his books. This is from Proverbs chapter 16. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Look at that. Atonement. Okay? Through the fear of the Lord. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. Evil is avoided. And here's the word. When the Lord takes pleasure, it's the same word that we're talking about, in anyone's way, he causes their enemies to make peace with them. How does one, how does one get this pleasing status with God? Through atonement, through propitiation, through fear of the Lord. More to come. But that is, that is the teaching, the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Right there. I'm letting that sink in. Boom. Come on. <laughs> All right. Let's get it ready for the next passage. And by the way, if we're this, I knew this was going to get technical. And if anyone's listening along here on YouTube here tonight, please chat in with your questions. We got people from all over the country tonight, too. Ohio, Connecticut, Las Vegas tonight. That's kind of cool. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Yeah. You want to take next, us into the next passage? Yeah, we got our next key passage. So this, this one is Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It's 15 to 22. And this one is worth reading in full because we haven't covered it here on the podcast. So I'm going to do that. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Now, here, here comes the fun. Ready? Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why to die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God, that's key, whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than 10 rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every person, every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Now, we're going to have to pick apart this verse, but the first thing I want to do is I want to make a case just very briefly for uh, why this verse is a massive, uh, massive claim. These, this set of verses is a massive claim in, in the book. First of all, um, I'm going to lean on what we shared in a po past podcast. The book can... Um, plausibly be broken up in, into four major sections. And we've really covered now the first section um, in, in great detail. You have this question, what is the meaning of life? And there's an answer. This is, this is the meaning of life. You live it under God. Um, it, you, you enjoy his gifts. We just got done with that. Then you have the second major section of the book. And the second major section of the book, which we're going to be covering in great detail as well, is we're going to look at God's beautiful plan. We're going to look at God's beautiful and sovereign plan 
time, seasons, very famous poetry in there. And uh, then what the, the, the rest of the section does there in that section, second sec section, it begins to pick up what I'll call objections to God's beautiful plan. But it looks like this, God, and that kind of thing. And, it, and it, Solomon begins to then answer um, and rebut those objections. Then you get to um, a third section. We're in the third section here. And what it does is it takes those two truths that we just discussed, those two big ideas, the sovereignty of God, um, living with God's good gifts, and um, it, it starts posing um, what I'll call um, a, our big issue. Like, it really seems unfair because you heard it in the verse. People die, and it doesn't seem to add up. You, you have a righteous person dead, you know, died before his time. I don't know if it was, we're thinking about it, Abel, you know, Cain and Abel, or what. And then there's a, a, a wicked person, maybe it's Cain, that we can think of right now, and the guy just keeps living for a while. And it doesn't seem to add up. So you have, this, you have these outward circumstances that don't seem to, to make sense. They don't seem to be just and right. Um, and then you have inward responses to that that don't seem right. And what you have um, right here in these verses is is Solomon coupling the two. You have an external circumstance, people are dying, it doesn't seem right. Um, and then you have an inward circumstance. This is, this is what I, how I want you to respond with the fear of God. And it actually explains and is a hinge then in the entire book. Yeah, and thank you for that context and background. I, this is what I'm proposing here tonight that we're going to, I'd like to kind of get into this verse and work through it almost completely backwards. <laughs> if you're okay with that, because it's going to help us interpret some harder verses that come near the beginning of this section of Ecclesiastes 7, 15 to 22. But one of the bedrock verse that's going to really kind of crack this thing open like a nut is right here in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. And it is not an overstatement to say that this passage, along with verse 18 that we'll look at in a second, is maybe the most probably, uh, I, right? I, I could debate you, maybe the most important passage in the whole book. And it could be the most important passage right up there <laughs> in the whole Bible. <laughs> so, and I hope that's not um, saying too much about it, but so I want to do, I want to just show you this, like this, again, this is a passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 20 or seven, verse 20. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. So right away, like, let's just lay down this fundamental bedrock truth that we do not relate to God, because remember, that's what we're talking about in this episode. We do not relate to God on the basis of our own righteousness. It cannot Can't be work done. that way. Can't be done. 
can't work that way. <laughs> you are not going to control whether you live or die based on your own righteousness. Can't. This, this is Solomon's teaching. And I can't say that more clearly enough. We do not relate to God on the basis of our own righteousness. No one on earth who is righteous. There's nobody like that. And, and put, this, put this in the context of the book. You know, a lot of times Solomon makes these observations. He makes these counsels. He gives us these counsels. Not as often does he make these absolutist claims like he does here. I mean, this is as absolute as you can get. This is not Solomon the skeptic. This is not Solomon the, the, the investigator, the searcher, the wanderer. This is Solomon. This is it. <laughs> this is it. And yeah, and just so you know, I'm not being bombastic or making claims that I shouldn't. And I want to show you this. I'm going to put it up on the screen here if, if you're with us here on YouTube. But look at Romans chapter 3. This is, this is just huge. This is Paul builds his whole argument about, that excludes works and, and shows it's, that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. And he leads off the argument, his number one passage, the first one. Boom. The billboard passage. Guess what it is? Ecclesiastes. Look at, look at what it says. This is Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, and I'm circling it. There it is. There is no one righteous. Not even one. A direct quote from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Now, I want to make a couple of comparisons here. Um, not everybody agrees with what I just said. So if you if you look at if you got hopefully you got your Bibles open, maybe you got the NIV, you can look and you can, you know, you see those little letters to see what passage is being cited. Some people think it comes from a psalm. I can't disagree more. And this is what's going on here. So let's just do a little bit of comparison between the two. Um, it, Paul is citing Ecclesiastes chapter seven. Uh, he's and he's and he's heightening it. So Paul's, there's, there's just a small difference in there. There is no one on earth, Solomon says, who is righteous. So he's talking geographically, okay? Paul just changes it just a smidge. And he says, there is no one righteous instead of on earth. Paul says, emphatically intensifying it. Not even one. Not even one. So this is, this is you, you might call it a paraphrase. Maybe Paul's pulling in from another psalm from somewhere. But this is, this is Solomon's teaching showing up in Romans chapter 3. And after Paul excludes our own righteousness, of course, he goes on to say, um, uh, on the basis of Solomon, again, uh, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And, and so justification is, cannot come from ourselves, so it must come from 
God. Faith. Yeah. Through yeah. Faith. Yeah. From outside of ourselves. So I don't know, Jonathan, you want to talk, talk more about that at all? This is you know, when off authors do this, when biblical authors do this, and Paul does it here, this is a rhetorical flourish. If there's a Bible verse that you know well, and somebody takes it and they intensify it in some manner, you're going to notice it. And people knew um, what Paul, the move that Paul was making. They knew their Bibles. They knew this was from Ecclesiastes. And this would have, um, when you hear that kind of language um, intensified, with a rhetorical flourish, it hits you in the heart. Whoa, Paul, <laughs> you just yeah. drove a nail into it. Right now, uh, we're we're gonna we're we're getting we got about ten minutes left, Jonathan. So let's let's take this all the way home now. Ready? Here we go. <laughs> so Paul's gonna in verses or Solomon. Sorry, Solomon's got a little bit of a a scene here that's gonna drive home this one truth that. Righteousness not, doesn't come from us. He's got you hear your servant cursing you, and he's like, "Don't get upset about it because you've done it too. You've done it too." So he, he's kind of making that point. And now it, we're moving backwards through this. I want to take us right here into verse eighteen. And now it, here's what the NIV has: It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Uh, and I can't, that is such a disappointing translation. I, oh, it's I bad. I can't. I didn't I can't even read say, it in my church where I'm preaching on it. I didn't even read it. I didn't read the NIV. I can't I tell you how disappointed I am with that translation. Yeah. The, the NIV, the NIV obscures what ought to be one of the most important verses in the whole book of Ecclesiastes. And by the way, there is a footnote in the NIV. So what I did here up, up on your screens is I got a couple. I'm gonna I'm gonna show you the Hebrew just so you know that I'm not making this up. But I'm also gonna there's a couple translations here. Uh, here's the HCSV for the one who fears God will end up with both of them. Still don't like that one. I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. It's better though. It's a little bit better. The message by Eugene Peterson. Come on. Does, a little better, yeah. Yeah. Um, though a person who fears God deals responsibly with all reality, not just a piece of it. The ESV does pretty the best of those three. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them, and the both of them would be the overrighteousness and the overwickedness. Uh, now, let me just do the Hebrew. I'm going to give you my own literal translation. This is the word fear. So, um, because the one fearing God, so you can see the word Elohim right here, the one fearing God, and here's the word Yetzah, uh, goes out, and then you have, this is just the word the, et, and then you have the word all, the word all. So what is, what is Paul saying? The one who fears God will go from out from all of it. You will go out from all of it. And so what is he saying? This is eschatological. The, the, the God-fearer, the God-fearer is going to go out from over-righteousness and over-wickedness. But even more than that, we're going to go out of sin and death and everything that we even see. This, this is salvation. You're coming going, out of it. We're coming out. This is, and, and how do you come out? Like, I, 
Now I'm getting excited. But how do you come out? How do you come out? Who is Fear it? God. The one fearing God. Right. Do you see what he's saying? Like this is this is justification by faith. Yeah, let me see if uh, you, you did a great you did a great job explaining it. I want to see if I can go at it. I hope everyone's like, excited um, about it. Like my my mind <laughs> just blowing right now. I want to take it from the top down because we did it from sort of the bottom up, and I want to just take it from the top down for a second. Here's the situation. You got righteous people, you know, so-called good people who are dying young. And I'm paraphrasing very loosely. You got wicked people who seem to live a long time. Solomon's observed this. You can have two possible reactions to it. You can either say, you know, that the the those that the good person wasn't good enough, so I gotta be better, you know, or I or I just give up and those are the two reactions. So on the one hand, you can become over-righteous and you try to not die by being a good person or a better person than Abel or your uncle Harry who died at 45 from a heart attack, even though he was a churchgoer, whatever. You try to be better than them. Or you just throw in the towel and you say, well, maybe I'll live a long time being just giving up and being a sinner and throwing in the towel. And Solomon says, don't. He says that faith takes you off the spectrum. You actually stop trying to control your life um, by your works. And you realize, I don't control my life at all. God does. And you trust him. And you come out from all of it. That's it's it. the life of faith. It's yeah. the life of faith. Mm -hmm. now, we got a really good question, Ruth chatted and said how does the new lutheran study bible translate the verse that that'd be interesting i did not look at the esv that that's a that's an interesting question i know john oh, she's thinking e, I, I think she might be thinking ehv yeah the the heritage version in, yeah i don't know heritage. yeah somebody know. somebody type it in if they got it yeah i'm not sure uh jonathan you did work a little bit of work on what it means to be God fearing. And I think that at this point, I think we need to come out with that and just kind of lynch this home then. Like, how does this, the God, the one who fears God, we're coming out of all of it. We're, and we're going into the great, the goodness and graciousness of God. Hopefully this, uh, the, this teaching of justification by faith um, in Christ uh, by grace is coming through. But give us some give us some fear of God stuff. So the, the person who fears God comes out for from all of this. This is this is such a key. So what does it mean to fear God? Um, we can get a handle on this. It it does pop up in Ecclesiastes a number of times. If you want to look at it, um, please do. Um, the, these are your references: three fourteen, five seven, seven eighteen, eight twelve, and thirteen, and then twelve three. So fear of God is, is a massive concept in, in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's, it's, um, it, it's especially a prominent idea in wisdom literature in the Old Testament, um, although it, it's also in other parts of the Old Testament. It also shows up in the New Testament. People are called God-fears there as well. And, and so 
in in wisdom literature in, in particular, fearing God is um, somebody who is recognizing that God is creator and I am under him. He is the one who shapes reality and I am going to live by faith under him. So the, 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 the assumption that wisdom literature makes and wisdom literature makes a lot of fundamental assumptions that they don't flesh out like the rest of scripture does. Um, but the fundamental assumption in wisdom literature is that a, a God fear is somebody who is in right relationship with God. It's somebody who is in a faithful relationship with God. So this is the claim I'm going to make. The claim that I'm going to make is that a God fearer is, is somebody who has faith in the Lord. It's, there's, an, there's, a, there's an equivalency there. It's, it's the same idea. It's, 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 it's not different. So let me see if I can show this to you um, very briefly. Ecclesiastes. Can I interrupt uh, you for just a second? Yeah. That's, by the way, that's what Luther taught too in the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear your love, trust love and God. trust. Yeah. Yeah. There it is. It's all, mm -hmm. it's all the same thing. Yeah. So you're in this faithful relationship with God. So look, we're, we're totally running out of time now, but if I could, what I'd do is I'd read you the passages and I'd show you like in Ecclesiastes 314, it, it's going to, it's claiming that God is the shaper and the maker of reality and that he's sovereign and fearing God means that we know that we, 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 we realize that God is, God is the one doing all these things. So in, I want to, I want to push on this idea just a little bit more. God is the arbiter of reality. And I want to do it by telling um, a quick story from the Chronicles of Narnia. This is from the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, very famous story um, where C.S. Lewis is thinking about this idea of what it means to fear God. And Mr. Beaver um, tells Susan that Aslan is a great lion. She's never met him before. And Susan is surprised and she's thinking um, Aslan is, is a man. And she, this is what she says to Mr. Beaver. She says, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And she asks, she says to Mr. Beaver, is he safe? <laughs> and Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. So you have, you have this idea in the scriptures of God as this overwhelming fire, but he also deeply loves us. He's holy and he's loving. He's, he's just and he's forgiving. And the way that we work this out, this is brilliant theology. Everybody needs to read this. But if you, if you go to, there's this confession of faith called the Apology to the Augsburg Confession. Everybody needs to read. It's fantastic. Um, right after you read the Bible, read, read that. And in there, we make the distinction between what we call um, a filial relationship with God and a slavish relationship with God. So you can have two kinds of relationships with God. You can have a slavish one where you're afraid of him. You're just afraid that he's going to smite you. You're afraid he's going to get you. You're afraid that he's going to bring judgment on you. And you're actually a slave. But a filial relationship 
is where you, you have awe of him, you have reverence for him, you understand who he is, and it's, it's just like Susan's realizing, like, wow, he's a lot, but he loves me, and he's good. Yeah. I w- I'm trying to think, like, how can we how can we back out of such an incredible teaching from, like, the gospel according to Solomon? The best way I can think about is this, that the height of foolishness, this is wisdom literature, so let's go t- total wisdom. The height of foolishness would be to live your life without a single thought for God, to live completely apart from him. And, and, Without thinking at all, I wonder if he's angry with me. I wonder if he's got it coming for me. That that would be the height of of foolishness. And look, Ecclesiastes, when it comes right down to it, gets as far as Proverbs does. Now we're going to turn the corner. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the beginning of wisdom is full and free salvation in Jesus Christ. That's it. We have that a God. Is the gospel according to Solomon. Yeah. I think we got to tap out with that. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Notable Podcast. You can check out our other seasons on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. If you are enjoying this ministry and are so moved to support it, please visit us at www.thenotablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.